We believe in the Holy Spirit who breathed out this word of Holy Scripture infallibly and inerrantly. We believe in the Holy Spirit who breathes upon us to give spiritual illumination to our minds and to open our hearts savingly so that we might receive and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ unto the salvation of our souls. Let us pray. Glorious Father, we ask in the name of your Son that you would send forth upon us afresh the blessed Holy Spirit of truth to open our minds and to open our hearts that we might receive your word of truth and be sanctified by your word of truth. We pray that you will convict and convert more deeply and consecrate us more fully into your service to the glory of your name, through Christ our Savior. Amen. We're going to be looking again at this passage from Acts chapter 5, which we read last Sunday, but we're going to begin the reading this morning at verse 27. This is the point at which uh, the apostles, having been arrested and put into prison and then released from prison by the angel, upon which time they went back to the temple and started preaching again and were arrested again and brought back to appear before the Jewish council. So we, we pick up the reading uh, at this point in the narrative. And when they, that is the captain of the temple and the guards of the temple, had brought them, the apostles, they set the apostles before the council, the Jewish Sanhedrin, the supreme court of the Jews. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them 
and charged them not to go speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then the apostles left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all praise, honor, glory, and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Last Sunday we looked at this passage by putting ourselves, so to speak, in the shoes of the Jewish high priest and the Sadducees who opposed the apostles. And drawing a parallel between the Jewish leadership of the first century and us today, I suggested that we probably have a lot more in common with the high priest and the Sadducees and the Jewish council than we might at first think. If we put ourselves in their shoes, so to speak, we might gain a deeper insight into what it means to be a true Christian. Namely, the lordship of Jesus Christ, when sincerely embraced, brings radical change to our lives. Jesus changes everything. That's the threat. This morning, I want us to put ourselves in the shoes of the apostles, so to speak. What would it be like to be in their situation? But first, a word of preface. Last Sunday, I said that I was preaching to myself. I am always preaching, first of all, to myself. And so is Pastor Jonathan preaching to himself. But this sermon may be a bit more autobiographical than usual. Now, by autobiographical, I do not mean that it is about me. It is not about me, but rather that the approach that I'm going to take in this passage and in this sermon comes somewhat from the perspective of my personal experience, and that makes it uncomfortable. I wonder if you'll be able to relate to this passage in a similar way from your own personal perspective. If so, it may be uncomfortable. Let's see. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the apostles. The apostles were ordinary Jewish men. There wasn't anything about them in and of themselves that was particularly noteworthy. We really know very little about them, about their personal lives before Jesus called them. James and John, Peter and Andrew were fishermen, ordinary, hardworking men. They were ordinary, faithful Jews. And even at this point, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven, they still considered themselves to be faithful Jews. They still attended worship in the temple. They weren't trying to start a new religion, but they were seeking only to be faithful to their Jewish faith by proclaiming to their fellow Jews the good news 
the gospel which had been prophesied by the prophets. The Messiah of Israel had come, that he had suffered in their place for the forgiveness of their sins, and that God had raised him from the dead and exalted him to his right hand as Lord of all, Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen, the Christ. They proclaimed this gospel with the hope that their fellow Jews would believe and be saved. There's there's nothing in the New Testament to suggest that the apostles were radical revolutionaries in the organized political sense, nor that they were intentionally trying to cause trouble for the Jewish establishment. There's nothing to suggest that the apostles were riff-raff, rabble-rousers, anti-establishment troublemakers, nor that they were what would be called religious extremists, like the group of Jews who went out into the desert and lived in a commune with very specific esoteric religious rules of their own. No, 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 no. The apostles had been pretty much ordinary, socially acceptable, mainstream, main street, normal people all their life. Like us. People knew them. People liked them. The priests in the temple welcomed them. Like us. You get the picture. Until, until Jesus changed everything. When they began to live as Jesus' witnesses, they hit a wall of opposition, the dominant culture. No longer were they regarded as ordinary, mainstream, faithful Jewish men. No, no. Because of their faithfulness to Jesus, they were regarded as troublemakers. They were no longer normal. They no longer fit in. Now, I bet that not many of us would relish the thought of ourselves as outsiders rabble-rousers, troublemakers. Here's where it gets somewhat autobiographical. You know, I've always thought that I pretty much fit in to the social-cultural norm. At least I would like to think (laughs) that I did and do. I've never really thought of myself as someone who was outside the norm. I like to be liked and accepted, probably more than I should. You can see where this is going. There was a time in our culture when basic Christian values were affirmed and respected, when going to church every Sunday was the norm and the general moral milieu tended to support what was being taught in the home and in the church. And life around here, at least, seemed like one big integrated whole. It all fit together, and, and you could have, it, it seemed you could have one foot in the world and one foot in the church 
And there didn't seem to be any big, great divide between them. And there were some good things about that. The downside was you could fit in and go along and get along with this culture of uh, check-the-box southern churchianity and do just fine, it seemed, without ever being born again and truly personally converted to Jesus Christ. But we all know that we don't live in that world anymore. And parents today aren't raising their children in that world. We are now living in what sociologists and demographers refer to as post-Christian America. America after the Christian consensus. The Christian principles and values and morals and sensibilities can no longer be assumed as the norm in American society. The dominant culture is secular, a world without God, or at least a world in which the God of the Bible no longer has any binding authority over individuals or society as a whole. And you really need to get that. You really need to understand the world in which you live. The air you breathe and the water you drink. A world without God, or at least in which the God of the Bible no longer has any binding authority over individuals or society as a whole. And that puts us, if we are true Christians, in an entirely new situation. And if we think that it doesn't affect us here in Northeast Louisiana, we are quite naive. Perhaps you remember the parable of the frog in the kettle. You know, put a frog in a kettle of water at room temperature on the stove, because the frog is cold-blooded, its body temperature adjusts to the temperature of the water. So turn on the stove and turn up the heat. And the body temperature of the frog adjusts to the temperature of the water. So turn up the heat again. And the body temperature of the frog adjusts again. So turn up the heat again. And you would eventually, you would think that eventually the frog would jump out. But it doesn't. Turn up the heat again. It just keeps on adjusting to the heat of the water. And so it stays in the water until it is boiled. You see? That's what happens when we, professing Christians, go along to get along with the dominant secular culture. That's the reason that Jesus said... You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Right, trampled under the feet of the dominant culture. This is the reason that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome 
do not be conformed to this world. And the Apostle James wrote, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That doesn't sound like go along to get along, does it? If we live as Jesus' witnesses in the midst of the dominant culture, we just might not be considered normal anymore. Now, I'm just curious. Have you ever read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 11? Blessed are you when others reviled you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets before you. Have you ever, have you ever read that and said to yourself, hmm, 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 I really hope, hmm, hope that never happens to me. Hmm, kind of seems strange to rejoice and be glad and have everybody bad-mouthing me. Right. And because of our cultural history in which we have never suffered severe persecution, for which we ought to be thankful. Jesus' words may seem strange to us, but Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount are very much at the heart of this passage from Acts 5. And we can be sure that Peter and the other apostles remembered these very words as they were being harassed and interrogated and beaten. The apostles weren't troublemakers, nor did they intend to be. They were doing only what Jesus had commanded and empowered them to do, live as his witnesses. But that did not fit with the agenda of the dominant culture. They were arrested. Again, see, they really were troublemakers. This time, after the angel had unlocked the prison doors, they went right back to the temple and started preaching the gospel. Again, troublemakers doing what Jesus told them to do. So again, the high priest and the Jewish council took them to task. We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. There's the dividing line. We must obey God rather than men. You know, the Jewish council simply wanted the apostles to go along and get along and there would be no problem as long as they quit doing what Jesus told them to do. But the apostles were under the command of a higher authority. They couldn't go along to get along. They couldn't fit in with the council's definition of socially acceptable normal behavior. We must obey God rather than men. Acts 5, 29, this verse has provided the basic principle for both ecclesiastical, that means within the church, and civil disobedience. During the Reformation, when Martin Luther was being charged with heresy and threatened with excommunication unless he recanted his biblical teachings, he said, here I stand, I can do no other. He was basically saying to the church authorities, I must obey God's word in Scripture rather than men. 
Likewise, if a civil government ever commands Christians to do something which is sinful or prohibits Christians from doing something which God requires, the principle is we must obey God rather than men. And that is to say that the authority of civil government, a la Romans 13, the, the, the authority which Romans 13 acknowledges and grants to the civil authority is not absolute. The government is not God. And the civil government does not have the authority to control the life of the church, whose Lord is Jesus Christ. And to attempt to do so is an overstepping of the bounds of jurisdiction, as we have seen in some cases during COVID. And we would do well to remember how in some cases, liberties guaranteed by the Constitution of the United States were violated by government overreach during the pandemic. And if faced with such government overreach in the future, it would be our turn to say, we must obey God rather than men and be prepared to face the consequences. By the way, the Oregon Health Authority is now requiring people to show proof of COVID-19 vaccinations in order to enter maskless into places of worship. Romans 13 does not require Christians to submit to that tyranny. And by the way, our Presbyterian forebears have taught us that resistance to tyrants is obedience to God. Otherwise, there never would have been a Presbyterian rebellion known as the American Revolution. So if Romans 1 or any other passage of Scripture is deemed to be hate speech by the government, our mandate is clear. We must obey God rather than men and be prepared to face the consequences. But it's not just in those formal official contexts in which we are called to say we must obey God rather than men. It can be necessary in more ordinary and personal circumstances. And this is where it gets really difficult because this is where it is more likely to get real and personal for us. Now, for example, some of you made a deeply personal but very public decision to leave a congregation, and I am referring to more than one congregation, that you had been part of for many years or a lifetime because the denomination of which that congregation was a part had abandoned the biblical teaching on human sexuality because it had, prior to that, abandoned the authority of Scripture, and therefore had really abandoned the truth of the gospel. But it was a painful decision. 
And there were people who didn't want you to do that. There were people who didn't understand why you did that. There were people who were angry that you did that. There were people who thought that you were self-righteous and holier than thou and judgmental for doing that. And that's no fun. It wasn't any fun for me when I was going through it in Virginia. And there were those who said that for the sake of peace and unity, you ought to go along to get along, even if it meant celebrating what God calls abomination. Now, this congregation as a whole made the same decision and set itself apart from the community in some ways. And I'm sure that that raised some eyebrows, but we must obey God rather than men. And you see, this gets right to the pressures we feel because Jesus has called us to live in the world, but not to be of the world. John 17, his prayer for us. We are in the world, but we're not to be of the world. And it's hard. It's hard. Let's be honest. It's hard not to be conformed to this world. We like to fit in. I like to fit in. Don't you like to fit in? It's hard to swim against the stream and run against the wind of our nice dominant culture. Parents, you're raising your children today. You're not going to let your children fall victim to the sexual confusion revolution, are you? You're going to teach them that God makes girls and God makes boys and the English language actually has gender-specific pronouns that match accordingly. And that's just one example. You're going, to do, you're going to do a lot more than that. You're, you're going to say to your child's friend's parents, oh, no, we, we don't watch PG-13 movies. We don't watch PG. As a matter of fact, we don't let them watch anything that we have not first seen. You're going to do that, aren't you? Because God has commanded you. God has commanded you to raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And, and you see, it has nothing to do with being holier than thou, self-righteous, judgmental. It is simply a matter of obeying God and being faithful to Jesus Christ even though the dominant culture might find it strange. In a post-Christian secular world, all you have to do, all you have to do is live the basic, the basic Christian life according to the Bible. All you have to do is live the basic Christian life according to the Bible and you are going to be thought strange. Our wedding policy states that the pastors of Covenant Presbyterian Church shall not officiate the weddings of couples who are cohabitating. If they repent of their sin and separate for the remainder of time before the wedding, 
the plans may proceed. Well, we print that in our policy. You know, it's, it's as though it's some big new idea that we came up with, you know, and had to make a big deal about, you know, printing it explicitly. Well, in today's society, it would be big news to a lot of people. Now, I'm thankful to say that we have not, we have not had an issue with that in Covenant EPC. There were, there was a couple of non-members, you don't know them, um, who uh, inquired about being married here with a view to church membership and when the policy came up, that was the end of that conversation. But we must obey God rather than men. And so we've got it, along with uh, another statement that's actually more basic and obvious than that about marriage in our wedding policy because of the dominant culture of worldliness. Theologian David Wells has given us a great quote about the culture of worldliness. He says that worldliness is that system of values in which sin seems normal and holiness seems strange. Great quote. Worldliness is that system of values in which sin seems normal and holiness seems strange. Now, dear friends, holiness has nothing to do with the clothes you wear or how you do your hair. Holiness is simply a matter of obeying God from the heart. And in our dominant culture, that can seem strange while sin seems normal. A church member recently sent me a photo of a new t-shirt promoting ULM and asked my opinion of it. I don't think, I do not think that it's officially produced by the university, but nevertheless, it's out there. People are going to be wearing it. Anybody seen it? All right, well, you will. But anyway, a church member asked my opinion of it, and so since I was asked, I will tell you. According to, it's not my opinion, according to historic Christian standards, according to historic Christian standards, it is a blatant violation of the third commandment. So what are you going to do? You're forewarned. You're going to buy one? Show your support of the university? Going to wear one? Support the team? What are you going to say when someone offers one to you or your employer distributes them and tells you to wear it? Better start thinking about it. Acts 5, 29. Oh, well, you're just being, they don't really mean that. Yeah, yeah, you can hear it already, can't you? You can hear it. It has nothing to do with being holier than thou, self-righteous, or judgmental. It's just that we must obey God rather than men. But being faithful to Jesus Christ in a world that is opposed to him will get you some funny looks and perhaps some unkind words. In other places today, it will get you imprisoned or killed. So, for example... When the soccer coach or the baseball coach or the cheerleading coach or the ballerina coach, whoever, tells you 
not to worship God with his people on the Lord's day, not to keep the Sabbath holy, not to obey the fourth commandment, because it doesn't fit with the agenda of the dominant culture, what do you say? Oh, what do you say? What do you say? We must obey God rather than men. I've got a free commitment on Sunday. It's been on my calendar for about 2,000 years. I know that baseball season is about over now, but you can begin preparing for next year with that perspective in mind, and you can get your Christian friends from other churches on board with you and build a community of common convictions and see what happens. And for those parents whose children are not yet that old, you can go ahead and make that decision now on the front end so you'll know where you stand before the time comes. And I know it won't be easy. I know it's not easy. None of this is easy. I told you it was autobiographical. I feel it personally in my own ways, probably more than you know. I honestly do. But we cannot expect Christian discipleship to get any easier in our culture any time soon. The apostles proclaimed Jesus with love and compassion and straightforward truth, and they were met with a wall of opposition from the dominant culture. And in this case, before they were released, they were beaten. They probably received the dreaded 39 lashes. And what does the scripture say? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What a verse! What a verse! rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were maligned and beaten badly, and they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor. They were honored to be dishonored for the name of Jesus. That puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? Every sneer, every slur, every false accusation, every misrepresentation, every little bit of snide gossip, it's all for Jesus. It identifies you with Him. It draws you nearer to Him. The dishonor of the world on you honors Him. The dishonor of the world on you honors Him. And that is your honor. And there could be no higher honor. Is it not an honor to be identified with Jesus Christ the Lord of glory. And that is our joy and our security in this world that we belong to Jesus, that we have been bought with His precious blood, that we have been called out of darkness into His marvelous light, saved from our sins, saved 
from ourselves, saved from the wrath to come, and that we have received grace and mercy instead of wrath and judgment, and that eternally we will be glorified with Him. We will share His glory, provided that in this world we suffer with Him. Are we there yet? Can you see yourself rejoicing to be counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name and then to continue to live as a faithful witness of Jesus Christ in a world which opposes him. May God give us the grace and the power of the Holy Spirit so to live for the honor of his name. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we ask your help. We pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray that we would walk in a manner worthy of the name of Jesus Christ. And with you as our God, we shall do valiantly through the grace and mercy and power Jesus Christ, our Lord, in the abiding presence of the Holy Spirit, to the glory of your name. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us stand to affirm our faith, the faith of the one church of Jesus Christ throughout history and throughout the world, as we say together the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge.